Welcome to What Won't You Say, a woman-centered podcast. I'm your host, Sonia Mastic. Stick around for the season to be inspired by amazing women who bravely delve into the stories of their lives, giving hope and inspiration to others. Together, we will explore such a wide array of topics that you will be asking yourself, what won't you say? All right, welcome back to the podcast. We are still in the middle of our story series with Jackie Zimmerman. Hi, Jackie. Hi there. So where we left off is that you were just done with the ridiculous roller coaster trip. Yes. And you are in the hospital at this point. You you go there for dehydration, you get admitted, and that is sort of where we left off last time. You want to pick up from there? Yeah, I, I think then, I think I did mention last time that that was sort of like when I told my family I had this new diagnosis as they showed up and were like, what's going on? And I was like, ah, surprise. Yeah. Pokemon, collect them all, autoimmune diseases and stuff. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of the the beginning of the decline, right? If you look, every story has a weird climax. The climax to the story actually comes very early because, um, and I would argue this story has multiple climaxes, but um, because as, from as here- As any good story does, by the way. I mean, <laughs> I don't know enough about story arc, so I'm making it up as I go. But uh from here is where, I mean, there's a, a noticeable and literal decline in my health and my abilities. So that ER visit, I think I was there for about a week. And at that time, again, like I didn't really know what ulcerative colitis meant in terms of how it impacted your health, right? I knew it meant poop, but I didn't mm -hmm. know all the other stuff. So even when I got admitted for that time, I didn't know it was directly related to colitis. I just was like, I'm here. Things are bad. They're telling me I'm dehydrated. They're telling me I have to stay for all this testing. But I don't really know. I still, it's like Groundhog's Day to when I was diagnosed with MS. Like, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why we're doing all of this stuff. Um, and and this sort of not knowing carries on for the next couple months because anybody who's ever been diagnosed with something, particularly in the chronic, chronic illness realm, knows that in the beginning, if you haven't had a lot of experience in the medical industry, most of us flail around just taking what the doctors tell us and just do that and don't ask questions and don't know what's happening and don't know how the processes work. And until you do, and then you go, oh, that was all bullshit. I'm going to approach this differently now. So I'm going to ask what I think is probably on some people's minds. You've already sort of go gone through the whole MS deal and mm -hmm. you weren't given enough information why were you not asking more questions going through this? So at the, mm -hmm, <laughs> I don't know, but I do know part of it. One, I'm still 24, right? I'm still right. kind of like a baby adult figuring some shit out Two, This is so different. It is like a different part of your body, a different symptoms, different everything's that it's like starting over again. It's, it's like your brain got whitewashed and you're, or not, what is, what am I thinking? You got, you're like men in black mm -hmm, memory mm -hmm. eraser, right? Where you're like, everything is, the doctors are different. The hospitals are, everything is different. So the, the overlapping is that I'm sick, but nothing else overlaps. So it takes a while. And again, I think that especially when you're new to something you don't know the protocols, like I didn't know protocols for UC. So I couldn't question them because I didn't know them. Um, mm -hmm. And so a lot of this is just education, right? You learn through doing in a lot of medical scenarios, whether it's good or bad. And then from there, in theory, hopefully you learn to feel more empowered to ask questions, to get the information that the holes that they have left in your care, because you just don't, 
you don't know there's a hole there until you get to the other side and you're like, wait a minute, it probably yeah. you think someone's gonna come along and tell you all this stuff. You think somebody's gonna come in and fill the gaps while you're in it until you get to the other side. And then you're like, wait a minute, nobody told me why I was even doing that, you know? Yeah, and, and that wasn't an accusatory question, but it's a thing, no. again, to help educate people. And I will say uh, two other things sort of piggyback on there is, do you feel like psychologically knowing what you know now, was there a lot of freeze and fawn going on as well, where it was very paralyzing? You were just trying to like get out of the hospital, deal with one thing at a yes. time. and a hundred percent. Also like tacking onto this again, I'm still 24 and a girl. Well, I'm technically a woman, but I'm pretty not yet a woman, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we're talking about wildly embarrassing stuff, yeah. you know? So there's the freeze for sure of like, oh man, everything is tanking again. Like I thought, I thought I got the bad thing. I thought I had the one bad thing and now I could continue. Like there's a whole lot of, this is not fair happening this is, you know, because also comes in again, the, you're so young again mm. from everybody in the hospital. So it's like this, like, it's not even a triple whammy. It's like an octuple whammy of some kind where there's yeah. compounding comorbidities. We've got my age. We've got the nature of the disease. That's scary. We have medical people who are not forthcoming with a lot of information when you're going through the shit of things and just like general chaos of I feel like I'm dying all the time. So like yeah. when, when in there, like the empowerment piece, in my opinion, most often comes when you are well enough to experience, to push it out there. Yeah. And when you're not, when you're sick or you're weak, you don't have that extra fight to have the empowerment to do the things that are best for you. At least I definitely didn't at that time. I think as well, and I absolutely hear you, that the third component is, you know, the story that I, a friend that I was with a lot that was also in and out of the hospital a lot. And I don't know if this was your experience, but my experience being the one that was not ill was that I got a very um, sobering education on the hospital system in the ways that ER trips and emergency hospitalizations are not trying to solve any problems no and they're not trying to diagnose you they're triaging what is there and getting you out as fast as possible is that your experience as well yes for certain and and in in most of my scenarios so I, I think I mentioned in the last episode but worth reiterating so at this time let's say this is March or April somewhere somewhere spring-ish from that spring until September I am in and out of the ER weekly and let's say every third ER visit results in a week-long hospital stay. Hmm. So I am here a lot, right? And so I'm in the ER to the point where they're sort of, I'm sort of getting the like, oh, you're back again looks from there. And I'm like, I, I don't want to be here either. Like, right. don't give me the, the looks. Yeah, and the look is, oh, hypochondriac. Okay, come on in. Hypochondriac, yeah. drug sinking, right? Yeah. So then you start getting paranoid about saying what's actually happening because you don't want to be perceived as, but in, in the meantime, I'm in excruciating pain. I'm losing so much blood that I'm anemic and iron deficient. That might be the same thing. Uh, but I'm like weak. Like I physically can't think and hold myself up and eat things anymore. Mm -hmm. I am dehydrated like banana pants. I have so much stuff going on that even when I, and when I, for me, and I think for a lot of people, but in my experience, when I get super, super dehydrated, I have a hard time talking. Like I don't have mm -hmm. the breath to like 
it's so much work, right? So you mm-hmm. get in there and you're trying to talk to people and they're just looking at you like, okay, we're like, come on, we're, we got time. We don't have time yeah. to listen to you. And I'm like, I'm trying, man. Like I'm really in here right. giving it my all, but it was like just chaos for those six or so months of trying to figure out like me understanding like, oh, this is all colitis. I'm here because of colitis. Like I didn't, I didn't know it looked like this again. I didn't know anybody who really had colitis. I didn't know what it looked like. I just, again, poop, you know, poop and and that's it, right? You think maybe you poop a lot and like, that's it, but you don't know how much it literally just destroys your whole body from the loss of stuff. So the loss of fluids, the loss of blood, um, loss of serotonin in your Mm. large intestine. I mean, just like everything is at a loss. And so when you do get admitted, so yeah, you go to ER, they triage you and they're sort of like, are you dying or not? And that's, in my opinion, how it goes. Yeah. (laughs) And if you're not, you could be in like the worst pain of your whole life, but if you're not like on death's door, you can wait. And so most of the time you do, and then you do testing. And there was a couple of times. So Um, CT scans are very popular ER tests for people with IBD. And I've had a lot of MRIs because of MS, but I had never had CT scans. So in my brain, I'm like similar thing, kind of different. Right. Mm -hmm. And so a couple times, so I'm not afraid of the test is what I'm saying. Like I've, I've done tube kind of testing imaging things. And so I'm in the ER one time and I go in to get this CT scan. And so you're laying on your back, you go into the tube and for a stomach one, you put your hands straight up in the air and you kind of are like touching the top of the tube. And then they come in and they give you an IV probably for contrast. I can't remember CTs take contrast, but it's probably for contrast. Mm -hmm. And so, um, which is something they put into your veins to help them see different things on the imaging. So they put it in and my hands are up and like, I'm... something is feeling wrong. And I like, I can't articulate. I'm just sort of like, you know how, if you've ever had this kind of scan, they're always like, you know, just give us a shout if if you yeah. need anything, because they're not in the room with you. But you never want to give them a shout, right? You never want to be that guy who's like, hey, I need something, right? You don't want to be a pain in the ass. Mm. But I can see something in my, like my IV is, the, the tubing is like expanding. Mm. It's growing. Oh my God. And I'm like, this is bad. Like I, I and so I'm like, without being too much of an intrusive, yeah, right? Like, yeah. hey, hey, can, um, hello, someone? And of course, no one comes because I'm not confident in what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, they yeah. probably didn't even hear me. And the IV explodes. And there is the liquid all over everywhere. And I am traumatized because oh, I didn't gosh. know this could happen. And I, again, I'm like in this vulnerable posi- position yeah. where like, w- what, like what just, what is all over? It's all over me. Yeah. Like what's in the IV tube. And like, I don't, again, they come in and they're like, oh, wow, whoopsie daisy, you know, and I'm like, I don't, I still don't know if this is a thing that happens. So I'm very like, nervous. We do the scan, I go back. And then I'm just going to fast forward to like, I don't know, five ER visits later or something. And I go in for another CT scan. And I tell them the last time I had a CT scan, the IV literally exploded. I am very nervous right now. Like, that was pretty traumatizing. I'm here because I'm sick, like I, stuff exploding in your face when you're getting a test is, you know, not a fun time. Well, that's right. So they're like jammed straight to your vein. Yeah. I so mean... they're like, no, it's wow. That's crazy. We're going to be good. Bloop, bloop, bloop. We do the test. Guess what? It explodes again. Oh, my gosh. Two for two. And I literally and, you know, if I'm looking back, if I'm like processing this, 
that was probably truly when like the first stages of like a real medical PTSD started. Cause when I think about that, like I think about how fucking panicked I was and it was just like, I was not in any danger. It didn't impact the test. Right. It just was like, who has an IV explode on them twice. twice. Yeah. Yeah. And so just like you, st- I think some of the trauma for me in this is learning what could happen. That was a lot of what it was sort of like, yeah, you, you're existing and you're like, man, this sucks. These tests suck. This ER sucks. This disease sucks. Everything sucks, but you don't know what you don't know. And then you learn, oh, your IVs can explode. <laughs> you're like, what? I didn't know that. Sort of tied to anxiety. You and I often joke about because uh, dealing with the reality of it is scary that we often through anxiety means in our body we make up scenarios that are never going to happen and that is a scenario that you would anxiety induce makeup and be like there's no way that would ever happen and it happened twice twice and i even like i said i i prepped them and said this happened last time can we make sure that doesn't happen again and of course i'm like the crazy patient in the in the er who tells them this thing that they were no part of so they're like okay lady yeah they were bad we're gonna be good Yeah. yeah and it happened again and again do i have any did anybody tell me ever once why that happened? No. Has anybody ever told me since then? Actually, that happens sometimes because of X. No, that's still just a random thing in my history that I don't know why. And I will perpetually, literally always be afraid of now. <laughs> like, always. So if you don't mind me asking what ha- what's happening with Matt at this point, what's happening with the boyfriend? And because, and, I mean, this is a lot going on in your life. Yes. So at this point, I will still say he's still pretty good. And by good, I mean like showing a modicum of interest in what's happening, right? So when I get admitted to the hospital, he'll call, he might visit depending on the hospital I'm at. Because at this time, I'm also doing the hospital tour of Southeast Michigan. I've been in every single one of them. I've seen them all. I have lots of opinions on which ERs to go Mm. to, which you got to stay for a week, which ones you want to and which ones you don't want to. I've literally done them all. So depending on which one I'm at, depends on which ones he will visit Because, you know, work, (laughs) you know, Mm. he's the only one that has crazy work that can't make him travel anywhere for anything. So, but at this time, I am still going, he's supportive. And he calls me and my standards are so low that this is good enough for where I'm at in my life. So I'm just going to do like a quick fast forward because that's basically those like six months is like, I'm in the hospital, scary shit happens. I get admitted to the hospital, more testing, more answers that don't really change anything for me right now. We're just, they're trying medications. We are talking about, you know, like what this looks like in the future, like on my I'm going to say medical team, but really, I mean, my like really crappy GI that Mm. patted me on the shoulder during that first hospital stay. I did get, um, I saw the, the GI that was on staff and I tried to follow up with him because he seemed nicer after I got out and they worked at the same practice. And that's the first time I learned that sometimes if you have doctors at the same practice, they won't let you switch because they consider it competition within their own practice. Incredible. So I, of course, didn't know this. And I'm shocked because I'm thinking like, I'm a paying customer. I get to choose who my practitioner is. And they made me jump through these like, I had to sign paperwork. The doctors had to sign off on it. It was like this whole thing. 
again, I had no idea this. I thought you'd just say, I don't like Dr. A. Can I see Dr. B? And they're like, you got it. You're the customer. Yeah. No, it was basically like, fuck right off. We, you do what I tell you to do. Yeah. So that's the, the one of the many billion farces of private pay. Yes. Is, you know, like you think, oh, it's private pay. It's so much better than, you know, any other variation. And it's all, you know, it's not. It's not yeah. <laughs> LOL. The best thing you can do is switch practices, which most people pick the one that's close to where they live. So like, that's not always ideal. All right. Anyway, I digress. So I, um, at this time they have started me on it, like what is kind of like an entry level medication for colitis. It's one of the first drugs they start people on. It's in a class of drugs called the five ASAs. Um, and it is like, beginner's guide to colitis. Everybody starts here. How far, if you can guesstimate, how far into symptoms, not even your diagnosis, how far into symptoms are you before you actually start taking meds? I mean, it's gotta be like six, seven, eight years. Oh yeah. I mean, honestly, I've had, I know that I had, I know I had symptoms when I was a child. Okay. Like Here's, here's a horribly embarrassing story that I've literally never told anybody, but I will tell you and the rest of the internet right now. <laughs> so I went to sleepaway camp when I was a kid, probably like, let's say ages nine to 12, somewhere in there, right? Mm -hmm. Like young, pre-adolescent. Uh, I definitely was not a teenager. And I went there for a couple of years with my best friend. And uh, one year, I remember distinctly this horrible, horrible thing happened. I... um. I shit my bed in the middle of the night, mm. which, you know, is pretty fucking bad. <laughs> and how old were you at the time? Probably 10. Okay. Like, honestly, probably 10 or 11. Like, young enough to be like, to know this is very embarrassing. My parents are not here. I am in this cabin full of other girls. We have a counselor, but I don't know her that well, right. you know. And so I have since been a camp counselor. And I know that there are systems for things like this, but as a child, you don't, you don't know that. Right. So instead of going, okay, we're going to get up, we're going to clean up. We're going to wake up the counselor. We're just going to be real quiet. I go, we're going to hide this. Yeah. That's what I would have done at that age too. So by hiding it though, again, it's not like I peed the bed, right? I shit right. the bed. And so I shit the bed and I decided to like, in my sleeping bag also, like, mind you. So I try to like bunch up what I can and tie it up in like a plastic bag on the top bunk, mind you, in the middle of the night, like old squeaky bunks, mm. right? They're metal. Like it's not quiet, whatever mm. I'm doing. <laughs> right. And so I try to like, you know, get beach towels and like lay them out to just like, like something else to sleep on. I walk up to the bathroom, which is like hella far from yeah. this particular cabin. I do some cleanup and I go back to bed. Meanwhile, like I know there's still like, shit filled stuff in this cabin that I have no intention of doing anything with because I don't know what to do with it. I'm yeah, you're, you're a child. Yeah. So we wake up in the morning and my bunkmates start talking about a smell. Mm. And I'm literally like, I just panic and my heart sinks. I know what they're talking about. Luckily for me, our cabin is kind of close to the water and our dumb 10 year old brains decide that they're dumb 10 year old brains decide that that is the smell of clams. I mean, sure. So they're like, it's the clams. The clams are like horrifically smelling this morning. And I was like, you're right. Woo, clams. We hate clams. Stinky right? clams. Horrible. So again, I don't know what point in the week we are because I think I've like literally blocked this whole thing out, but I know I shit the bed as a child 
due to lack of control, right? Not because I wasn't trained, not because I didn't want to get up, but because I couldn't control it. That was the first time I know that something was like wrong. So you're about 10 when this happens. And then how old are you when you finally get your first, you, you kind of your diagnosis and your first bout of medication? I'm 24. Okay. So give or take 14 ish years. Yeah. And, and I know there were things in high school that happened. Right. So it's like, yeah. I know this was there. I also know statistically, had I sought help sooner, things probably wouldn't have gone as bad as they did. Um, so, you know, if you have an embarrassing medical condition, this is your sign to go get that shit checked out because it doesn't get better. It doesn't solve itself, you know? Um, yeah, these are the point, uh, you know, of her telling the story too, as well. These different stories is is uh, not for entertainment of hearing the story on the internet, but again to educate. <laughs> and that's the thing is is even the questions that I brought up, it isn't like the healthcare system's a piece of shit. It's like these are the difficulties that you're facing. And yeah. for me, like I said, it was the most eye opening to go like, oh, hospitals aren't even at all not because they're a failure or anything, but because literally the design is to triage it's to do surgeries if you have to and triage and they get you out and then um i don't want to stay too long on this because i don't want to interrupt your story arc here but um did you also find the same trouble that my friend did which was we're going to triage you here go see a specialist the specialist could be the exact person that was treating you at the hospital and they say see me within three days and you can't see him for eight months because their schedule's not open every time every Every single time every single time yeah it is the most yeah. broken system I've ever seen. So this part I am bitching about the system. That is yeah. so incredibly broken. No, it's, and they know that that's the worst part is they know that when you call, you're not going to get an appointment. So like, I, I don't know. It's, it's dumb. Right. And we can talk about that. This is a whole podcast yeah. on its yeah. own here. But, um, but all this to say, if you are in this position, don't worry about seeing the person that saw you. Yes. Yeah ever like get into where you can get especially if time is of the essence go to where you can go right yes and and that said like it is worth noting and i've had this conversation with a lot of people that if you are experiencing like problems right now today right you are losing blood today for example of uc or you have something that is like going down right now go to the er because that is going to be the quickest way to get care right you might have to call someone, in this case, let's say GI, it, you might wait six months to see a GI. Instead of letting your stuff get worse and worse and worse and worse, go to the ER. It's going to cost way more money, but you're going to get on a treatment plan significantly sooner. You might then still wait six months to see that doctor for a follow-up, but at least you're not going untreated that whole time. That's like the way to hack the system. And it's a terrible hack. It's not a good one, right? It's a very expensive, time-consuming hack, but it's the only one we got. And it does bring again up the point, and I don't want to go off on a tangent from from your story of the fact that so many people cry foul about the private system saying if we did universal health care, we'd have to wait for services. You have to wait for services now. You have to wait now. If you have anything significantly wrong with you, even if it's cancer, you have to wait. You have to wait until there's an opening because doctors more and more and more and more and i have a lot of friends that are doctors that all say the same narrative which is we are getting paid less the insurance companies are getting paid more so we have to over book every single day to just pay our staff pay our bills they're not taking fancy vacations and and all like it's just getting more and more where the healthcare system meaning the insurance system is taking 
all of the wealth, all the money, dispersing it to themselves, to politicians, to to big money. So the system is the same, except one, you're being fleeced for your money and the other you're not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's incredible to me. So let's roll back to you get your meds for colitis. Now you yes. are, you are now in maybe in your mind thinking like, Hey, we're going to start getting a handle on this. Things are going to get better. And and I want to like, I'm going to reiterate some stuff about this medication class of drugs because this part matters. So one, my first medication, I was on three pills, three times a day. That's nine pills a day. That's just the one medication they started me on. When I was at my height, I think I was on like 17 pills a day um, for various things. And so one, who can remember three pills three times a day? Fucking no one. So Especially like, that 24-year-old. <laughs> no. So, I'm, you know, yeah, I have alarms. I have this. I have yeah. that. But like just the reality is like three times a day is very hard to comply to for anybody. Really. And if, you, if you're listening to this and you're like, LOL, I could do it. Okay. Then give it, give it a vitamin try three times a day. <laughs> it's really hard. A vitamin um, try. <laughs> take vitamin D three times yeah. a day and let me know how it goes for you. Yeah. Because I don't, there will be a time when your alarm goes off and you're not by your meds and you can't be by your meds. Cause you're like life happens around these time periods. So anyway, and this drug has been around for eons, right? It's an old drug. It's a safe drug. This is again, everybody starts here and then we go, Oh, are you worse? And then we kind of bump it up or whatever. So at this point I'm on this drug boatload of steroids. Cause like that's the go-to for everything. Inflammation is steroids. Mm what happens is not what I think is going to happen. I think, again, we're on the path. We're going to start reeling this in. I'm going to start feeling better. We're going to find something that works. And I'm going like, to get back to my fucking life here, right? Because yeah. this, this has sucked. <laughs> no, that does not happen. Instead, you know when you get a new medication and you get that little crumpled up piece of paper that nobody reads and we all promptly throw in the trash, the P.I.? Um, yeah, about about seven because it's about 17 arm lengths long yes you know and it's you know point font point size five right nobody yeah. can read it it's tiny and nobody reads it most of us don't i don't blame anybody for not reading it but in that little pamphlet for this drug would have said in approximately one percent of patients you will experience what is called a pericardiac effusion Guess who is the 1% of patients? <laughs> so what happens slowly over time is I start experiencing this pain in between my shoulder blades. And it's like a dull pain. And then it becomes a real sharp pain. And then it's a stabbing pain. And then it's like, I am in so much pain. And I'm going to rewind a hot second before this, because all this sort of, I get released from the, one of my hospital stays, I get released. And I have this pain at the point of being released from the hospital. Like I know, I know I felt it. And I went home this particular time. This one's very clear in my mind, sicker than when I went in, they were like, wow. we're done. Goodbye. Yeah. Um, and I was in just real horrible, horrible condition. I remember I couldn't walk to the bathroom. My mom had, I went to my parents' house because I mm. couldn't take care of myself. My mom cut my food for me. She walked me to the bathroom. Like I was in bad, bad shape and they sent me home. So that's another one of those, like, we're not here to actually treat you. We just right. need to get you out of here. Um, so I'm home. I'm on this medication. I have this horrible pain in between my shoulder blades. And again, it's 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 the spot between your shoulder. Like, you can't even reach it. You know, if you try to reach it, it's that spot you can't get. And it's just this, like, every kind, it's the throbbing, stabbing. It's constant. And it's bad. And it's getting worse. 
And so I have a follow-up with a rheumatologist that I saw in the hospital. This one within days, I don't know what his deal was, but also yeah. I'm going to just shout out Dr. Dowd. He is a top-notch rheumatologist in Southeast Michigan. And I credit this man literally for saving my life. And here's why. So I go to this appointment and I remember like my, I have my head down in the chair. Like I just don't have the energy to even hold my head up to have a conversation with him. And he's kind of starting this exam and I could tell he's looking at me like, you're not right participating really, you yeah. know? And so he starts doing a quick exam and he's checking me out and he checks my heart and he goes, your, your standing heart, sitting heart rate, that's what it is. Your sitting heart rate is 165. Um, you have to go to the ER right now. Like leave my, leave my office and go immediately to the ER. We're going to stop right there. I know this is mean to do to you all, but uh, you'll have to check back on the next podcast to see where it goes from here. Uh, thank you so much for, again, your your absolute vulnerability and your willingness to tell the story. I know it's it's not easy. And so we appreciate uh, you and your time. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next week, okay? And uh, sorry to everybody at Camp MUCC that you're... <laughs> Just the bed, literally. It, so. it, it was, it was, it was still the clams. I'm, I'm holding by the clams. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We'll see you in the next episode. <laughs> Thank you for listening to What Won't She Say. You can find us at whatwon'tshesay.com, on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else that you like to find your podcast.